Good morning, everyone. I'm Scott. Would you please stand as I read from God's Word for us, please? This morning's text is Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, Yet forty days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from the throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let everyone call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows, God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Scotty, my brother. I appreciate it. It's wonderful to see all of you. Welcome to Disciples Church. If you are new to us or if you are visiting with us today, my name is Dave Hahn. If you don't know me, and it is, as always, my privilege to be able to open God's Word with and for you. So if you haven't been here, uh, even, even if you have, just to serve as a reminder, two weeks ago when we started the book of Jonah, we began by reading these words. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So then we talked about how when the word of the Lord comes to someone, we should understand that phrase to mean that God is speaking personally and directly to that person and that he intends to use them powerfully. So whenever you see the word of the Lord come to someone, know those two things. I also mentioned that chapter 1, verse 1, which is what we just read, was the first time that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, but that it would not, it would not be the last time. Here at the beginning of chapter 3 that Scott read for us, we find the second and the final time that the word of the Lord came to Jonah in this story. And in between these two words of the Lord, Jonah ran from God's command to go to Nineveh, that first command in chapter 1, and he was thrown into a raging sea from a storm that God sent to stop Jonah from running. And then Jonah spent three days having a would-be worship service inside the belly of a great fish, the same fish that God used to save Jonah from drowning until he was finally vomited upon dry land. That gets us all caught up, right? Quick little summation. <laughs> so as I was preparing this week's message, just to give you a little insight into the nonsense that goes on inside my head, here's what popped to mind. 
Mario Brothers. Mario Brothers. It was, if you're not aware, it was one of the most popular video games around when I was growing up, like the Nintendo and Super Nintendo type stuff. And in Mario Brothers, the idea was, as you led Mario, who was this stocky Italian plumber, through an obstacle course of sorts while collecting money and punching brick walls, traveling down tubes, and stomping mushrooms and turtles. Until you reach the end of the level, and then you would do it all over again at a slightly harder level. So, but as the levels got harder, and this is in part why I started thinking about it, you would get killed more often. It makes sense, right? And you would need to try to kind of stock up or save the lives that you had accumulated for the enemy that you would inevitably fight at the end. And if you lost too many lives early on, it was almost impossible to finish those harder levels because you were going to get your tail handed to you by that enemy at the end. So my kind of way of going about it was if I blew it early on in the game, I would just hit the restart button on my game console and I would try again. I was always so glad for that restart button because it meant that I had one more chance and I needed it if I was going to win. And who among us, Mario Brothers or no, doesn't like getting another chance when we feel like we've really blown it? Jonah chapter 3 my friends, is really a story of second chances. A chance for Jonah to do what God had commanded him to do in chapter 1 and a chance for the people of Nineveh to turn from their wicked ways and towards God. And God, in his mercy, put this story down in words so that you and me and the whole world in all of history might see his compassion and his mercy and his grace and know for certain that like Jonah and like Nineveh, we could turn to him as well, no matter how bad things get. Let's look again at verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going on a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah, having just been vomited upon dry land, with his feet now upon solid ground, heard from God a second time. And this word from God came to him with similar content as the first time from chapter 1. Arise, go to Nineveh, and call out against it the message that I tell you. The first two parts of this command, arise and go to Nineveh, were exactly the same as the first word that came from God, but the third part was a little bit different. Chapter 1 reads, call out against it, for their evil has come up before me, but here in chapter 3 it reads, call out against it, the message I tell you. Essentially, God was saying, go 
and wait for further instructions. Friends, God did not do things the way that we would have done it if we were asked to save the people of Nineveh. Did God send a fleet of prophets or preachers into the largest city in the world to make sure that everybody heard? Nope. He sent one man. Did he give Jonah a 40-minute sermon which laid out the specific issues and how to be able to come to repentance? No. God gave Jonah one sentence. Now, Jonah just came up of three to four pretty hard days, and he could have easily said to the people of Nineveh, listen, you guys, God is not messing around. You need to trust me when I say these things to you. But that's not what Jonah did, because it's not what God told him to do. Well, why? Why one man? Why one sentence? Because, my friends, it is God who saves, who knows how to do so, and he is not dependent upon man to accomplish his perfect will. We think many men and many words, and God says, I'm just going to use one. You see, the problem is is that If many men with many words did go to Nineveh, those same men would have taken credit for what God did. But Nineveh was ultimately turned by one man who spoke one truth. And as such, we see a powerful God at work. And we rightly give him and him alone the glory for what happened. You see, It is never about you and me and our clever strategies. It's always, always about God. And no matter how many men and how many strategies and how many words we may use, if it is not from, with, and for God, it will fail. But... If it is even one man and one sentence and God is behind it and in it and with it, it can do nothing but succeed beyond our wildest dreams. Continue in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from the throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. So in these verses, we find Jonah calling unto Nineveh God's words of impending judgment upon them. 
And incredibly, incredibly, the people of Nineveh believed God. From the least of them, the Bible says, to the greatest. The king, all the way down to the paupers. I thought about this, and it's, it's, I think it's hard for us to think about the, the magnitude of the king and the paupers of Nineveh repenting and turning towards God. So I want to frame it in this modern context for us to be able to kind of wrap our head around it. It would be like if the whole of North Korea turned from their evil ways, including King John Um himself. And then they held a press conference to declare unto the world their change of heart. Could you imagine something like that appearing on your television tonight? That's what happened in Nineveh. Now we know, friends, that Nineveh believed God because the Bible tells us, but more than that, we know that they believed God by what they did. It says that they repented. Repent is a word that we use a lot, but I think that it can be somewhat misunderstood. To repent means to turn, which means repentance is an action and that it is not a feeling. It is possible for a person to say that they have repented or to feel bad for what they have done, but continue to live and believe as they always have. But it is also possible for a person to turn towards God, never having heard nor uttered the word, repent. So, what then did the Ninevites do in keeping with repentance upon hearing God's word? Verse 6 says that they covered themselves in sackcloth and ashes, an outward sign of inner grief and remorse. Verse 7 says they proclaimed God's words and made known their desire to turn from sin and to God to every citizen. They fasted from food and drinks, even making their animals participate. And then in verse 8, they sought to turn from their violent and evil ways. These are actions, my friends. Now certainly, repentance means that we turn from a life of sin and towards a life of righteousness, but it is much more than that. To repent also means that we turn from unbelief and towards believing God. From unbelief and towards believing God. And above all, to repent is to turn from ourselves and towards God in the person of Christ, where God is primary and we no longer are. Believing God is the beginning of true repentance. Believing God is the beginning of true repentance. And belief and faith come by hearing the words of God. 
just as it did in Nineveh. The word of God was proclaimed to Nineveh, and they believed God and repented. And the belief of the Ninevites was made evident, not earned, by what they did. Hear me on that. The belief of the Ninevites was made evident. It was not earned by what they did. So, my friends, if your sin and disobedience and resistance toward God does not bother you enough to make you want to do something about it, I would be very concerned. If it doesn't make you want to do something about it, I'd be concerned. And if you are bothered by it, praise God, because it means that he is actively at work in you and that your heart is soft to the things of God. But let me be clear in this. For the Christian, for the Christian, God speaks only words of conviction, not words of condemnation. Words of conviction, but not words of condemnation. He will convict us of sin, while at the same time convince us of our righteousness in Him. Convicting us of sin and convincing us of our righteousness in Him. So if the words that you hear in your head and in your heart are only words of condemnation, that is not God speaking to you. It's the devil. If the words that you hear as a Christian are only words of condemnation, know that that is not the voice of God, but the voice of your enemy. Disciples Church, it is God who gives us both a heart to repent and the ability to do so. So would you today be bold enough to ask him to change your mind and your heart where they need changing? Would you be wise enough to admit that you can't change yourself and ask him to do it in and for you? He gives you the heart to repent, but he also gives you the ability to do it. So ask him for those things. Remember, above all things, only Jesus Christ can live the Christ life. You can't do it, and I can't do it. Christ in us does it. Our eyes fixed on Jesus is our only hope for true repentance and for eternal salvation, not our self-generated, well-meaning efforts. And behavior change is not a prerequisite for those who turn to God in faith. Rather, behavior change flows from believing in and beholding Him. Your behavior changes when you believe and when you behold Him, not the other way around. So one need not change before turning to God. That's what Just As I Am is about. The song we sang right before this. One need not change 
before turning to God. Rather, one changes because they have turned. That's what we learn from the Ninevites here. Look at the last two lines in Just As I Am. It said, the first two lines say, Just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve. Because thy promise I believe, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. Why do we come? Because thy promise I believe. God gives us the faith to believe, and in response we repent, we turn. And the Ninevites' turn toward God began with a word of judgment, accompanied with an implicit offer of God's grace. And this is the grace. It was the grace of his hand being held back for 40 days. You might miss it in reading Jonah's words. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. The grace is at the front end. In 40 days. And God's message to the Ninevites in many ways is his message to you and I and to the whole world. According to Jesus in John chapter 3, we are all judged and condemned already. But, but God has made a way for us to escape judgment and be saved in and through his son. Listen to John 3. We'll start with 16, the most famous verse, and we'll continue. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Did you hear that? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that it might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Did you hear it? Our position outside of Christ is that we are condemned because we have not believed in the name of his son. But for those who have believed, eternal life and salvation. So Jonah's words to Nineveh foreshadow that of Jesus' words to Nicodemus in John 3, the words that we just read. For the wicked and the unrepentant, judgment is already coming. But for those who turn from sin and to Christ in faith, there is no longer any condemnation. This is the greatest news imaginable. My friends, we have in the person of Jesus Christ what Jonah only saw a shadow of. The love and the mercy and the grace of God demonstrated in what Martin Luther called the great exchange. 
where Jesus took the punishment of all our sin and rebellion on the cross, and in exchange, by grace and through faith in him, we get Jesus' righteousness, eternal life, and sonship in God. That is an incredible exchange. But for those who continue to refuse God's free gift of salvation in the person of his son, God's judgment and wrath and eternal separation from him is coming. Maybe 40 days from now. Maybe 40 years from now. Or maybe 40 minutes from now. Finishing in verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Verses like these are fascinating and mysterious, aren't they? Because within them, whether you see it or not, we have one of the greatly debated issues in Christendom. God's omniscience and sovereignty and man's free will. Theologians and Christians have debated this idea for millennia and will likely continue to do so until Jesus returns. And like many other things in the Bible, there is mystery in it. And God asks us to trust him with what we cannot and do not understand. Commanding us as Christians to be unified in the salvific essentials of our faith while at the same time, hear me on this, extending grace to one another in the non-essentials. Enough warring over the non-essentials of our faith. So, With that said, I'm throwing my proverbial hat in the ring, (laughs) and for the next few minutes, I would like to share my own personal convictions regarding these ideas, that God's sovereignty and his omniscience and man's free will. And hopefully, I will do so in a way that is helpful to you as you consider them for yourself. I think in order to understand these verses, it is important to remember that the Bible is written from mankind's perspective. It is always written from mankind's perspective. Without exception, the words of God were written down by man, inspired by the Spirit. But mankind still wrote them, which implies a limited point of view. We have a limited view And so then did the authors of Scripture. So, what appears to be God changing his mind in response to Nineveh's repentance may really be the culmination of what God had sovereignly ordained to happen in Nineveh before the world began. So don't give up on me on this. We're going to go for a few minutes, okay? What appears to be God changing his mind in response to Nineveh's repentance may really be the culmination of what God had sovereignly ordained to happen in Nineveh before time began. Do we not see echoes of his intent to be merciful in that he sent Jonah to Nineveh rather than immediate judgment? 
Friends, God does not watch events play out the way that you and I do. And I think oftentimes what we do is we bring God down to our level and think that he sees things happen in a linear timeline the same way that we do. And then he responds accordingly. But you and I are only able to see the present. And we are only able to know the past. But the future is completely and utterly unknown to you and I. But not so with God. Do you remember back in Jonah 1 where the sailors rolled lots to determine who was responsible for the storm that they were in? Proverbs 16.33 tells us that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. You might be throwing lots, you might be throwing dice, but guess who knows how it's going to fall? So, if God determines where the die in the lot falls, is it so hard to believe that salvation is necessarily under his control as well? Is that so hard to believe? Listen to Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 10. I'll read it for us. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purposes, declaring the end from the beginning and things not yet done. That is our God. And then just six chapters earlier in Isaiah 42. Behold, the former things have come to pass. The new things I now declare, says the Lord. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Does this sound like a God? who's watching things happen and then responding? Friends, our God stands and rules over time. You and I see here and backwards to some degree, but God sits over all of it. And the past and the present, wherever that is, and the future are all places that he is and nothing stands in the way of his purposes being accomplished. He initiates, and you and I respond, not the other way around. So God was not waiting to see how Nineveh would respond. He knew how they would respond. And he chose Jonah to be his designated instrument in leading Nineveh to repentance as he had long planned to do, just in the same way that he had planned to bring judgment to Nineveh 150 years after Jonah came and left. The book of Nahum is all about that. But do you know, my friends, who did not know what God had planned to do? Guess who didn't know? Jonah and the Ninevites. They wondered, like you and I wonder, but they didn't know. So then it makes sense that the Ninevites would say in verse 9, who knows? 
God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And it also makes sense that Jonah would write in verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. These are the observations and words from the limited perspective of man. In Jonah's view, that's how things happened. But my friends, God does not change. Man does. God does not change. We do. And by God's grace and according to his plan, it is man who repents and turns around. It is not God. I once heard this idea explained this way, and I found it helpful. So I'm going to share it. Think of the times that you have ridden your bike whether you're a kid or whether you still like to ride your bike. Think of the times that you have ridden your bike and the wind blew hard against you, where it was just impossible to ride because of those gusts that were pushing on you. And then, somewhere along the same ride, whether you were going on a straight strip and turned around or whether you were going around a block, somewhere along the same ride, with your bike headed now in the opposite direction, the wind was suddenly at your back and pushing you along. Well, here's my question. What changed? The wind or you? What changed? The wind or you? Here's one, I think, very strong biblical example to help illustrate this idea, but there are many that are like it. In the book of Acts, Saul of Tarsus was riding against the will and the wind of God, and he was on his way to Damascus to kill and imprison Christians. So it was not Paul's repentance that led God to Saul. Rather, God, in his sovereign mercy, saw fit to knock Saul off his horse. In the midst of his sin, to change his identity from Saul to Paul, and to turn him and his horse around. God did that. With Paul no longer riding against the wind and the will of God, but with it. Just like he did with Jonah, just like he did with Nineveh, like he did with Jesus and all his disciples, and like he did with you and me. My friends, you and I were not saved when we repented or prayed a prayer or walked an aisle. Otherwise, you and I would get credit for our salvation. No, no. God saved us. God gave us a new heart and new life in him, and that is why you did those things. You were saved before you prayed the prayer, before you walked the aisle, and before you repented. But you repented, and you prayed, and you walked the aisle because God gave you a new heart and new life in him. Because the fact of the matter is, is that most of us weren't looking for God 
when he found us. From our limited perspective, I think it's easy to see how we could think that we chose God. But my question would be is, where do we think the revelation of our sin and the need for a Savior came from that we would want to choose him at all? Suddenly you're aware of your sin and suddenly you're aware of your need for a Savior? Where'd that come from? Listen to Jesus' words to his disciples in John 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You did not choose him, but he chose and appointed you. Now, Dave... Now, Dave, you guys have said that God doesn't need us to preach the gospel or to save the lost, but that he wants us to, that he invites us to. Well, why does he want us to, and why does he invite us to if he's going to choose whom he chooses anyway? Well, that's a wonderful question. I'm very glad you asked it. I have two answers for you to that end. Number one, We evangelize and proclaim Christ to the lost because he has commanded us to. Honestly, no other answer is necessary. He's commanded us to do it, so we do it. But there is actually a second helpful answer. (laughs) It is because while God knows whom he has chosen, we do not. God knows whom he has chosen, but you and I do not. As in all things, God knows, but we don't. And it is that idea which is central to understanding how God's sovereignty and man's free will coexist. It is rooted in the fact that God is omniscient and omnipresent, and we're not. So we trust, and we pray, and we preach, and we proclaim to everyone Trusting God to do what he has always done, which is to use the prayers and the proclamation of his people, that's you and I, to accomplish his will and save the lost. Even the prayers of occasionally whiny, disobedient, and reluctant people like me, you, and Jonah. So I'm going to ask you a question that I have already asked two weeks ago. And you may very well be asked it again next week, but if Jonathan doesn't ask it, I'll be very glad that I did. Who is your Nineveh? Who is your Nineveh? Who is the person or the people you ought to be knowing and loving and sharing Jesus with, but you have not, whatever the reason? Disciples Church, God has wired you and I in such a way that we are a perfect vessel to accomplish his will in the lives of those that God has surrounded you with. Your co-workers, your classmates, your neighbors, the people that you live, work, and play with are unique to you. And as such, the greatest evangelist, preacher, or apologist may never reach them the way that you can. 
because God has made you for that very purpose, and he has put those people around you for a reason. Just as he's made everyone else around you different to accomplish his purposes and his will through them. So to the degree that you keep quiet because you don't think you'd be good at sharing the gospel, that you won't know what to say or how to answer people's questions, don't worry about any of that. Just be you. Just be you. Don't try to be like someone else. God didn't put someone else where you are. He put you there. And it is God, my friends, after all, who promises to give you the words that you need to say. And it is God who will speak into their hearts whatever it is that you may leave unsaid. Do you really believe that this whole thing depends on you? And you getting it right? If you do, there's all the reason in the world to worry, but it doesn't. So don't. So as you have the opportunity in these next days and weeks and throughout the remainder of your life, tell people what you do know, whatever that may be, about God and his saving grace on your life. And then be okay saying, I don't know, to the rest. If nothing else, just tell them your own story what God has done in and for you, nobody's going to be able to argue with that, and you'll probably have all the answers. But my friends, it, it needs to begin. Hear me on this. It has to begin with loving the people around you enough to ask about them, to pray for them, and to earn the right to say more. Because as the old saying goes, People don't care about what you know until they know that you care. No one wants to be somebody else's project. Nobody wants a mark on their back. Everyone wants to be loved and listened to and understood. So let it begin there. Well, now, Dave, that's not what Jonah did with the Ninevites. Oh, yes, he did. Oh, yes, he did. Jonah went where God told him to go. And he said what God told him to say, at least eventually. And we are asked to do the same. It is going to vary from person to person and from place to place. So will you tell God today that you will go to whom he would have you go and then ask him to reveal those specific people to you? And will you Tell God that you'll say whatever he would have you say and then ask him to give you the words. You are all in Christ, after all, priests in his church, ambassadors for his kingdom, and ministers of reconciliation with the greatest news in the history of man to share unto those who desperately need to hear it. And God did not rescue you and I from death and hell so that we could live an easy and comfortable life while those around us go to the very place that he rescued us from. So be who God says you already are in him and do what God has equipped you and called you to do. And then leave the results to him. So the best part about the reset button 
on old video games was twofold. First, the game would save your progress so you wouldn't have to start from the beginning. Second, the restarts were unlimited. You didn't just get second chances to beat that enemy at the end. You got third and seventh and 20th and 900th chances to get it right. And so it is with the children of God through faith in Christ. When a Christian blows it, and we do, God doesn't take us back to the very beginning. No, if you're in Christ, you pick up where you left off because those sins and those failures were known by God before you committed them. And in Christ, he will complete what he has begun in you according to his will and in his time. And my friends, when a Christian blows it over and over and over again, and we will, God doesn't lose his patience with us or tire of us because his love is unending and his grace knows no bounds and his forgiveness covers past and present and future sins. That means unlimited restarts and no progress lost because our sanctification and our maturity is rooted in Christ, not in our own efforts. So unbeliever, unbeliever hearing my voice today, are you living for the things that Christ died for? Self-absorbed, prideful, and godless words, thoughts, and deeds, seeking to satisfy your flesh at all costs, but frightened when the storms of life come upon you. Or maybe you're like the sailors in chapter one. You recognize that you're in trouble, but you're still trying to save yourself through your own vain efforts, or you're trying to cry out to false gods who cannot help you, the gods of wealth and power and relationships and false religions. Is that where you are? I want you to know that it is never too late to jump in the game. Our living God is always looking for new players, just to continue with that cute little metaphor. And specifically, he's looking for spiritually dead, lost, and frightened enemies of God like you. And he wants to transform you into his beloved child, into the image of his only begotten son. And Christian, maybe you have failed to do what God has commanded you to do. Or you've done what God has clearly forbidden. Friends, we worship a God of new beginnings and unlimited restarts who cries out to all of mankind, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. These were the very words spoken by Jesus as he began his earthly ministry and they were fulfilled by Jesus in his death and his resurrection. So if the Lord is your salvation, find assurance today in knowing that it is because he has led you to repentance and caused you to believe in him. That's why the Lord is your salvation. And he does not and will not leave or forsake you, and he will lead you home.
And today, if the Lord is not your salvation, understand that the word of the Lord has come to you once again. So that on this day, you might repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ too. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you that you are the God who relentlessly pursues the lost and you discipline your weird children and you do not leave or forsake those who belong to you. There are the guilty and the ashamed among us today even as there are the hard-hearted and the unaffected. Father, would your Holy Spirit do a mighty work in both of them and all of those in between. You know what we need most to hear and see. So Lord God, would you give us a heart for the lost, even those we treat as our enemies or believe to be beyond your saving hand, remind us of our own salvation and then let us gladly declare the same good news to others with the same grace that was offered to us in Christ. Give us measures of grace and truth as we get opportunities to speak your truth and cause us to love those you have put around us in very real and practical ways. Our Father, we thank you for saving us, for the gospel that has so captured our hearts and has made us new creations in your holy sight. Would you complete the work that you have begun in us even as you begin new works in those who have not yet believed? It is in Christ's name that we ask and that we pray. Amen.